Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that our CMBH 12-week immersion program is open for fall application to anyone in Ontario. This is our popular medically integrated diet, exercise, and lifestyle program for people who struggle with their weight and metabolic health. Over the 12 weeks, you will get a physician's consultation and follow-up with a cardiometabolic health specialist. You'll get Dr. Appleton's empowered health report. You'll get a full review of your medical history, family history, and any medications you are currently taking, a system-by-system health assessment, including cardiovascular panel, lipids, kidneys, glucose metabolism, immune function, blood counts, and more. You'll get comprehensive lab tests, advanced diagnostics, and interpretation, prescriptions, if required, chronic disease risk assessment and management plan and medical management of any diagnosed conditions. Then you will also receive your very own health coach who will carry out Dr. Appleton's recommended plan. You will get diet, exercise and lifestyle coaching that can be done anywhere. You'll get support and accountability to keep you on track it is the full comprehensive package for people who want to take control of their health and change their lives the best part almost 70 percent of this program is covered by ohip for ontario residents and you do not need a physician's referral we will do the referral for you and it is all included if you're serious about taking care of your health please fill out the application form in the episode notes to see if you qualify or go to andrewappletonmd.ca that's all together one word andrewappletonmd.ca slash cmbh we hope to see you there Welcome to the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, where we teach you how to navigate the complex world of diet and exercise with medical and pragmatic views of the human body. Join Dr. Andrew Appleton and me as we give you the tools and resources to prevent and reverse lifestyle-driven diseases while optimizing fitness and getting the body you want. Enjoy today's episode. sources of traction you can get yeah create that uh i don't know what i'm talking about i don't know either filter or funnel was it like the marketing it's like a yeah funnel or something like that click funnels i don't know anyway everything leads you to the same destination okay we're recording i haven't had a proper cool down so i'm still (laughs) sweating like an animal here you should be ready to go then (laughs) yeah i'm I'm warmed up that's for sure we're back yeah it's been uh what a couple months yeah nice summer hiatus yeah flew by pretty quickly it did yeah me anyways first first day of school today Yes, today is the first day of school. I assume you sent your kids with their Joe Louis and <laughs> fruit by the foot. And you know that that's not true. Here's what <laughs> here's what happens though: is I make the kids lunch, or I shouldn't say that. Laura makes their lunch sometimes too, but I try and get in there and do it first. <laughs> uh, okay. And I leave earlier in the morning. I take Madeline to daycare, right? At 7 a.m. as soon as they open the doors. Oh, wow. Drop okay, that's an early drop Because I have to be yeah. back to pick up the kids at the end of the day. And Laura takes the kids in the morning. Yeah. And then uh, she can work later if she needs to. Um, but when I leave, the, the at the end of the day, the kids come home with things that I didn't put in their lunch. <laughs> Mysteriously. So, yeah. 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 So Laura. Do you think they're trading at Laura, school? No. Yeah. <laughs> Laura inspects, inspects their lunch. And if yeah. she feels like. Right. There's something else that needs to be in there. Yeah, need to dilute the fiber. <laughs> yeah, it's the ongoing battle between like fatherly and motherly attitudes. Where for me, I want my kids to come home and be a little bit hungry. Like I, if they come home and they're not hungry, I you sent too much stuff with them to school. Like they eat breakfast at home, right? Right, and they eat dinner at home. Aside from lunch, and I'll send, like, some fruit and then, like, a fake treat that 
you know, is packaged in a way that looks like it's what other kids, normal kids would have, but is uh, my, my approved version of that. Uh, and then there's always extra things that are tossed in there because of, because of Laura. And then what happens is they eat the stuff that Laura sends of course, first. Because it's delicious. And then, precisely. <laughs> and then the things that I send are the ones that get left over. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's like she's... Laura's just classic mother. Her fear is that her child is going to feel hungry for one second throughout the day, which is completely unacceptable, where I'm almost the polar opposite, where it's like a little bit of suffering. You got to suffer a little bit every day. You can't just be comfortable all the time. Well, how do you build resilience? Precisely. Step by step over my point of view. Like there's sweat dripping off me. Yeah, that's probably not going to (laughs) improve while we do this. (laughs) Anyhow, I don't know how interested people are in any of this, but. In kids' lunches? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's relevant. I I would imagine a lot of our audience probably packs kids' lunches. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I don't know how interested they are in my kids' lunches specifically. (laughs) Yeah, it's all good. All right. Well. I have you, a bunch of random. You got your iPad. I have. I do have my iPad. So things must be serious. Yeah. Well, I don't like to use up trees because I want to protect the forests. <laughs> so I'd rather take a bunch of precious metals out of the ground and put them into an iPad. That's right. Yeah. At least they're reusable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just I, I thought it'd be interesting just to go through a few updates because there's still you know the the science is still churning all throughout the summer and i've kind of got my eye on that as we're doing all of our our other stuff um so just kind of a hodgepodge of things um obviously we had our uh, testosterone episode a little bit ago so there's one sort of major update in the testosterone replacement therapy world so i guess just to give kind of a, a quick background For anybody who hadn't listened to that one so testosterone replacement therapy has been a bit controversial um but it's it's well known that men after age 40 lose about 10 percent of their testosterone levels per decade after that so hypogonadism is actually pretty common in men and then especially for people who are overweight or have metabolic syndrome uh, it's even more common to to have hypogonadism but we often don't check it, and most of our guidelines actually tell physicians that we should not routinely be checking total testosterone levels unless someone comes in with a complaint of, say, decreased sex drive or uh, erectile dysfunction or something like that. But then there's a lot of other non-specific symptoms like uh, depression and mental fogginess and fatigue, which of course all come up in, in middle life, which is difficult to kind of parse, uh, parse out. Anyway, one of the major knocks against testosterone replacement has been the concern for an increased risk of cardiovascular events like heart attacks or strokes as a result of being on hormone replacement therapy. So there was a, a major randomized controlled trial called Traverse, which has been actually ongoing for several years now. Uh, and we've sort of been anticipating the results of this trial, and it was finally published in the New England Journal over the summer. So this was actually a commissioned study uh, by the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S., uh, because there was a box warning on testosterone replacement products that said, you know, could be an increased risk of cardiovascular events. And so they went to the manufacturers of these things and said, you guys actually need to test this because we need to know for sure whether or not this is safe to give to people. So they did that. So it's a manufacturer-sponsored study, but it's, it's a well-done RCT where they actually took uh, men who were proven to be hypogonadal, so they had a testosterone level below the normal limit on two separate measurements, but they were also at either high risk of cardiovascular disease based on you know, hypertension, uh, blood sugar issues, cholesterol issues, or they had established cardiovascular disease like they'd had an, a heart attack or they'd had a stroke or they had uh, peripheral arterial disease. So that's the population going in, so a really high-risk population. And then they were randomized to testosterone gel replacement or placebo. And the like the the Coles notes version of the outcomes is there's absolutely no difference in major cardiac outcomes for either of those groups, meaning that it seems that in the highest possible risk population, there's actually no increased risk from the testosterone replacement therapy 
But then when you go and you look at all of the secondary metabolic outcomes of the, of the patients who are on testosterone, you see improvements in their blood glucose and their weight and their lean body mass and all of the things that we want to improve on treatment. So this is actually a really good news story to help alleviate some of the concern about uh, putting people on testosterone. Did you... That's long-winded explanation. It was great. <laughs> I almost fell asleep myself. Did you listen to that podcast that uh, Peter Atia did with that other uh, physician who specializes in hormone replacement therapy? I can't remember his name right now. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't remember his name either, but um, they, like, they got really super into the, into the weeds about it. Yeah, something that I found, uh, that I found interesting is, is he said, uh, and he was saying this is in his clinical experience as well as validated by the data collected within his clinical experience is that what he found is that uh, men who are hypogonadal or have low testosterone and get just enough testosterone to bring them up to low normal levels seem to have the highest amount of risk with testosterone replacement therapy, whereas getting to high normal to even supranormal levels through uh, hormone replacement therapy, testosterone in men, does not seem to have any of those risks. Did you have any, I don't know if you remember that portion of the podcast or if you had any thoughts on it, because I, I can't make sense of exactly why that would be, uh, but he seemed pretty convicted in standing behind that claim. Yeah, I must say it because th this was actually like that podcast was recorded before this Traverse study was reported. Right. So I don't I don't think the landscape of evidence for cardiovascular risk with TRT of any kind has really been <clears throat> well nuanced, <clears throat> maybe until now. Um, but in this study protocol. They, they, there was an upper threshold to, uh, to replacement doses, so they monitored testosterone levels. And once somebody went beyond the upper limit of normal, they actually pulled back on the dose. So they didn't allow people to stay in supra-physiologic ranges for very long. Uh, but they certainly had a target range of, of you know, well into the mid to higher normal range that we would consider. Yeah, and I would think like... But I, but I don't think they... Like they didn't stratify the results or the outcomes. And what's actually interesting in this population too is they, their cardiac outcomes were less, were, were rarer than they thought they would be going in. So in order to have a statistically powered trial, you need to have enough events happen to actually detect a difference. And so they actually had fewer heart attacks and strokes and problems than they thought they were going to initially. So partway through, they actually changed the study protocol to only include people with established coronary disease. So that just tells you, I, th I think we're sort of in the age of there's so many good treatments for people with established atherosclerotic disease, like with lipid lowering and blood pressure medications and everything else that, you know, the added value of this probably isn't really changing the needle on that very much at all because everything else is so well controlled. Gotcha. One more thing I want to touch on before we move on to your next topic here is you mentioned that uh, you guys are instructed that you don't intervene unless someone has actual symptoms of low testosterone. Right. So even if someone uh, has, a, has low testosterone on their blood work, if they're not complaining about erectile dysfunction or, you know, chronic fatigue or something that 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 you would uh, associate with low testosterone, that you don't intervene. Now, I'm sure part of that is because uh, testosterone levels are, are transient, and just because someone has a low level on a blood test, you would want to repeat that. But even in the event that you repeat that test five times and every time it comes back as low. It's probably true that various men require various levels, right? So just like anything else, like people can have different needs as far as like blood sugar concentration, right? And, and, and feel like some two people can have the same blood sugar level, either high or low. One of them can feel it in a way that is significant and problematic. The other person has no idea that their blood sugar is, is, would be deemed out of, out of control one way or the other. Do you think the same is true for testosterone levels? Oh, certainly. And, and you can never look at just one thing, right? So if you're, you're just focused on testosterone, I mean, there's, that's one of 
many different hormones that are affecting your physiology and the way you feel and the way your body's functioning at any given moment plus a bunch of other things going on your electrolyte levels and your hydration status and how well you've slept like it's it's impossible just to nail it down to one specific thing so if somebody came to me and they had none of those symptoms but they happened to have had a blood test that said that their total testosterone was low then the question would be well why did you have that blood test like that's that's just you're screening for something where there's actually no evidence to suggest that screening is beneficial gotcha plus the total t that we that we measured <clears throat> doesn't actually tell us the whole story right so it's the free version of the hormone that's actually doing the work but we don't often measure the free hormone level and if you're going to measure that so you need your total you need your free and then you need your sex hormone binding globulin to know really how much of that hormone is accessible and active in the system so even so there's even more complexities to to measurement and knowing for sure what we're looking at gotcha okay what yeah. do you got next on there there you go next is the updates on the quickly evolving ozempic story i was what before i knew that you were coming in with something specific uh i was going to say we should talk about uh semaglutide yeah because it's oh, i'll let you go before i say sure it. There's lot. I mean, there's lots of directions to to go with it. So Ozempic, or as uh, as as Tommy rightly mentions, semaglutide is the generic drug name. We shouldn't, uh, you know, <laughs> go along with with trade. Don't want to get this sued. Point, but that's what everybody everybody <laughs> talks about Ozempic. Yeah. Um, so this is the the glucagon like peptide molecule that is used for treatment of diabetes. That's actually the on label indication in Canada. Uh, but of course helps people lose weight is it uh is it available for weight loss in the u.s uh so wagovi is the is also semaglutide but it's the dose that goes up to 2.4 milligrams as opposed to the top end dose of ozempic is one milligram yeah exactly the same drug uh but for the weight loss indication it's actually wagovi that's indicated specifically for for that indication gotcha yeah, and we yeah we'll get to that in a sec so um so you know interestingly just obviously this it has taken off like crazy and the the company that makes it novo nordisk which is um and i guess a norwegian company it's so successful that it has actually increased norway's gdp because this one company is just making like billions and billions of dollars on this one drug. It's totally, totally crazy. Yeah. But because of that, they can't keep up with manufacturing. So they, it comes as a pen, sort of like, like a insulin injection pen or an EpiPen type thing. So you get it, you crank it for a dose and you stick it in your, in your thigh or your abdomen and you just click it and there's your dose for the week. Um, but the, the, factories cannot keep up with manufacturing the pens to administer the drug right. so there's actually now shortages and we just received like all the all physicians in ontario just received uh, a notification from the company saying that our one milligram dose pen is going to be in short supply so you may not your patients may not actually have access to it until well after october so this just gives you an indication for how, how wild uh, the uptake actually is. So there's supply chain issues. Um, in terms of Wegovi, so th that version is not available in Canada, and it's for that exact reason, because, because they can't actually keep up with supply for Ozempic, then they have, the company hasn't been able to launch this other product as well which just did launch in the UK. So it's now available there and they're giving it, they're allowing it for, so the equivalent to Health Canada there is allowing it for the weight loss indication uh, for, I think they're giving people a period of two years covered under NHS. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens there from a policy standpoint, because it's expensive and we know how overweight and obese our populations are in north america and the uk so a ton of people are going to be eligible for it and that could have real ramifications on healthcare spending and overspending in the next couple of years to come plus if you're only giving people uh two years of coverage what happens after because we actually don't have longer term data to say what happens later on 
when you come off of it and because you see often see significant weight regain when the drug gets pulled out from under people yeah i know there's a, a host of concerning side effects both while taking the drug and while attempting to wean or come off the drug um, and i think these i think these issues are are getting more obvious and harder to to sweep under the rug yep. the main one being the amount of lean mass lost along with the fat mass which now is upwards of of half <laughs> it's upwards of half the weight lost it is, <laughs> is actually lean mass yeah. which yeah uh, again uh peter tia made the point because he was talking about this excuse me <clears throat> he was talking about this uh clinically uh about his experience using it for his patient demographic and he was saying if you're above 50 percent body fat then a 50 50 weight loss of fat versus muscle mass that's fine but if you're less than 50 percent body fat and half of the amount of weight that you're losing is lean mass you're actually getting fatter <laughs> you're you're weighing less but you're getting fatter on the way to weighing less and I think about, uh, excuse me here, <clears throat> got to clear my throat. I think about uh, someone like my mother who was on this drug, Ozempic. She's since come off. Her family physician was very resistant to her coming off, even though she had adequate reasons for doing so. But even just seeing my mom, like I can see that she's wasting away and she's almost 70 and she weighs like 110 pounds. So she's a, my mom's a type two diabetic. But when someone's weighs 110 pounds and you know that this drug is eating away lean mass and this is someone in the aging population, I don't understand how as a physician you can see the path forward as continuing to take this drug that's causing muscle wasting knowing what we know about the correlation between muscle wasting sarcopenia and death in people in that age demographic yeah yeah i totally agree and i've i've, I've certainly seen more and more complications with it in my practice yeah uh it's, it's actually getting <laughs> sort of more more and more challenging with sustainability some people go on it they have great success and it's and it's really good uh, and we do see their metabolic health improve drastically. Um, so yes, the the body composition is is an issue. Um, but again, we have to look at everything together. So what's happening with your cholesterol? What's happening with your blood sugars? What's happening with your A1C and etc. So often there's a, a lot of significant changes, and with significant weight loss too, people sleep improves. You know, they they used to have sleep apnea, now they don't. So there's there's a lot of really good potential benefits. But I think it, it really needs to be saved for those at the highest risk. So I totally agree with, with Ozempic, just you know, for people who've got diabetes uh, or patients who are obesity with a lot of obesity-related health complications. Right. Um, so they don't necessarily have to be diabetic. But I mean, to get coverage in Canada for Ozempic, technically, and the insurance companies are definitely cracking down on this more because of how much they're spending, uh, that... If you don't have diabetes, you're probably not going to get coverage. So unless you're willing to pay out of pocket, you know, 300 bucks a month for it, which is actually much less expensive than it is in Canada. You than mean in the U.S.? Or sorry, in the U.S. Yeah, I think exactly. it's like 1,200 bucks a shot in it's, the U.S. Uh, like that, it's, it? it's 1,000 to 1,200 a month. Oh, a month. Yeah, yeah, not gotcha. per shot. Um, yeah, so, I mean, some people are certainly willing to do that. But here's here's what's coming down the pipe. So the... There's a trial called the SELECT trial, which was uh, another very large randomized controlled trial, over 17,000 people. And this is Wegovi for patients, at, uh, patients with overweight or obesity who have, I think, just established cardiovascular disease. So yeah. again, high risk population, but no diabetes. So they're, they're put on Wegovi, so up to the 2.4 milligram dose. And... The trial isn't published yet, but of course the company has done a media release in anticipation of the American Heart Association conference coming up this fall, which is where the, all of the data will be presented. But they're reporting a 20% decrease 
in major adverse cardiac events in that population, which is huge. Like, I, I, they don't tell us the absolute numbers. Like, is that 2% to 1%? Is that, you know, 15% to 7.5%? That's what we need to know. Yeah. But a, a 20% relative risk reduction sounds pretty pretty aggressive. And obviously, on the basis of that, these companies are going to apply for an extended authorization to patients who don't have diabetes. So again, we're looking at expanding who's eligible and how much money we're spending on medications like this. So side effects aside, uh, what is your general attitude about people relying on medication for these types of interventions in place of lifestyle changes that are perhaps challenging, but someone technically, yeah could make well this this is the problem that, that i run up against all the time so it should never be that you're using medications in place of lifestyle changes lifestyle changes should be the bedrock of every treatment plan and medication is used as add-on therapy when people are demonstrating that they're fully resistant to lifestyle changes or they're in such a high risk situation that the best idea really is to treat them with medication along with lifestyle changes while things are improving with the future goal of hopefully getting them off of medications at some point. But that's completely opposite to how most of the healthcare system is functioning. They go, oh, great, I can just go on this medication and then I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to worry about it because all of a sudden I have no appetite and I don't want to eat anymore, especially protein. Great. Yeah. Well, that's a terrible way to go about it. And if you actually look at the indications for the medications and the studies, all of the studies were done alongside increased physical activity and calorie restricted diets and other lifestyle intervention. Yeah. And anecdotally, it does seem like, uh, and this is for me, a big problem considering what leads to diabetes is that the drug specifically reduces appetite for hearty foods right. like protein, fat, where it does not seem to suppress the desire for something like sugar. Correct. Yes. <laughs> so yep. that's a that's a that's a compounding issue, right? Because the drugs, the trigger of the drug is that it makes someone not want to eat. Yeah. It's not that there's some, you know, like chemical interaction going on inside the body that prevents weight gain or encourages fat loss. It just makes people not want to eat. It destroys their appetite. So they're not eating, therefore going into quote unquote starvation and losing a ton of lean mass. But not only that, the thing that they are still eating is all the shit that they were eating that got them to the place that they were in many cases in the first place. Of course, there's some people who have a strong enough genetic predisposition that they might be in that place even, you know, yep. even with a healthy diet and some level of activity. But most people, especially when you're talking about type 2 diabetics, this is something that could be reversed with lifestyle changes that a person uh, can't or is unwilling to make, which is you know, can't and unwilling is kind of the same thing in this context. So what is the value? You, know, you talked about how in extreme cases and in, you know, the most in need populations, this is something that, that could be, you know, life saving, life changing. But for the vast majority of people, this is just something that drives them further into the behaviors that led them to where they are only seemingly without the consequence, but I'm willing to bet that the consequence is there. You're just kicking it down the road and it's coming in a completely different form. <laughs> because if you're losing significant amounts of weight, but you're not exercising, you're eating a bunch of sugar, you're not eating fat and protein, you're not building or maintaining muscle mass, like where... <laughs> Where does that go? Because I don't see that going to a place that's good. You can, I guess you could justify to yourself and say, well, perhaps that's better than being 350 pounds. Maybe it's better to be a 150-pound person who doesn't exercise and eats a lot of sugar than a 350-pound person who does that. Yeah. <laughs> but trading one 
trading one accelerated path to death for another accelerated path to a different death. I don't know that that's I don't know that that's meaningful or helpful. Yeah, it depends on how you look at it, right? If I, I, I think it's important to look at it at the individual's experience level. And so when you when you use that lens, then absolutely going the drug management route should be the last option. We should do everything we can to surround somebody with the support and team that they need to get them on track with lifestyle changes and optimizing their health. And that doesn't mean they have to get to a normal weight. They just probably need to you know, bring their weight down and start living in a healthier way. And then their body will adapt to those changes over time. But if you look at it from a health system standpoint, we'll go, okay, well, these medications, it turns out, might actually avoid a bunch of cardiac events, which are super costly in terms of acute medical care, disability insurance claims, um, you know, premature death and et cetera, all this stuff that comes up. So, you know, maybe actually this drug that costs three, four hundred bucks a month might actually save us on the societal scale. I don't care what the individual's experience is. As long as we're not having heart attacks and strokes coming in the door, then so be it, right? So (laughs) unfortunately, I think because we have government decision makers who hold the purse strings, that's it's that data that carries a lot more sway than the individual's experience, which we see in the clinic every day. Well, not just that, but I think there's also the uh, the convenience for the physician as well, where it's going to be way easier to just give somebody a drug that does exactly what they want it to do rather than yeah. trying to have someone manage their lifestyle in a way that is... Dude, you know, tell me about it. You're, you're not going to get... When I do a cardiometabolic health and lifestyle medicine assessment for somebody, I get a ton of data up front. I get their lab work up front. I spend a long time looking at that beforehand. And then we have our clinic appointments. And then we do a bunch of counseling and talking about where can you go. There's coaching involved. There's educating involved. It's really challenging. And it would certainly save me a lot of time and make me more money if somebody just came in and said, oh, you're obese? Great. I got some Ozempic for you. Let's just do that. And you'll see you later. Next person come in. For sure. That I mean the incentives are are really all wrong for how to do a good job for people. Yeah, I often struggle when I think about these things because my instinct I thought you just struggled with thinking (laughs) in general. (laughs) Hey, uh, because I instinctively feel like those things are always bad. But I feel that way because I'm basing it off of one, what what I'm capable of as far as my habits and behaviors. Sure. As well as what I've seen people who are not like me be capable of firsthand. But then I have to remind myself, that's not everybody. In fact, that's probably 1% of the population. So... Are, are you re- kind of referring to like like people who come in the gym yeah, here? Yeah, people who come into the and gym. And make a massive transformation just because... Something's changed. They've committed to to something. Yeah, they've got the community around them, and you see a wonderful transformation. Yeah, I know. I know people that fitness does not come by naturally. Right, are capable of succeeding, and I've seen it many times. But even if I've seen a thousand of those success stories, that's not that many people. Like I've seen over ten thousand people come through the doors of my gym over a decade. So even if like I've seen 500 people who perhaps don't seem like this would be something they're capable of, especially by their own self-belief, actually take care of themselves and turn their lives around and get results and keep them that they've never seen before, that's still you know 5% of the amount of people that I've seen. So that other 95%, should I be reserving my judgment and just understand that there's a lot of people out there who for whatever reason are never going to make these changes. And I'm sure some some reasons and driving forces behind the inability to make those changes are more and less legitimate and more and less understandable. But at the end of the day, for those people who no matter what education, opportunity, access, resources, they're just never gonna make those changes. 
is it is it better to just take a drug yeah. and not be overweight well and, and here here's where we're going with this rap like we're not done with with these types of drugs yet so another drug called terzepatide is a dual agonist so or semaglutide ozempic is a glp1 agonist <clears throat> terzepatide is a combined glp1 and gip agonist so it has two different hormonal pathways that both target your you know glucose homeostasis and gut metabolism and controlling appetite and everything else and it's even more effective that drug is not available in canada yet but the you know people lost like 20 percent of their body weight in those trials over a year like insane amounts of weight loss but we're not done yet so now there was another tr- a phase there's phase one or phase two like a dose response trial published in i think new england journal or jama again now we've got a triple agonist so it's tri- triple g so we've got glp1 gip and now glucagon is added to that so glucagon is called a counter-regulatory hormone so it kind of does the opposite of what insulin does so insulin is secreted in response to elevated blood glucose levels, uh, and it reduces blood glucose levels by socking it away into cells, at least it's supposed to, if, if you're sensitive enough to insulin. Glucagon is actually stimulating of increasing glucose levels. So if you're in a state of stress or you need access, like if you're about to exercise, your glucagon levels go up, or if you're hungry, your glucagon levels go up to free up some sugar. And so it actually will uh, cause glycogenolysis or lipolysis to actually generate new glucose to release into the body. So now we're targeting all three of these things. And in the dose response curve, like at the at the top end dose that they've studied in, these are healthy subjects uh, who, so quote unquote yeah. healthy, like overweight, <laughs> but no like end organ complications or, or damage. 25% weight loss. Like, can you imagine losing a quarter of your body weight? Like, I know you don't have a quarter to lose, but it's <laughs> like, it, it's it's amazing yeah. how powerful these hormonal treatments are. And I think it's really important to underscore that this is hormonal therapy, just like insulin is hormones, just like testosterone and estrogen are hormonal therapy. Like, really tiny doses of hormones in our system are extremely powerful messenger molecules. And when you start getting in there and messing around with these things, like it drastically changes your body's physiology. And I think we need we need to have more of a paradigm of that. Like, oh, it's not just, oh, simple. You just take a, a injection once a week and great. Yeah, but what's that actually doing to you? And are you creating a physiologic dependence? And what happens when all of a sudden you can't tolerate it or you can't afford it anymore and now you don't have access to it? Or there's a drug shortage and you don't have access to it? Like there's a lot of, ramifications that are going to come up anyway people aren't going to think about that uh and i think without question there's going to be shortages like if you think about the amount of expansive global supply chain intricacies that have to go into any of this stuff as well as the you know general rising political tensions (laughs) all around the world it's only a matter of time until there's a severe problem in the drug supply and sure. i'd be more concerned about things like insulin for type 1 diabetics right. uh, than i would be about these yeah. sorts of or things antibiotics <laughs> yeah things yeah. like that yeah. uh yeah i think those things are going to be an issue but if it's going to give the person what they desire in the moment those all of those other considerations i think go out the window especially when you think about how how a very overweight person feels about themselves to say like here's a thing you can take that's going to solve that not just the physical problem but a lot of the emotional problems that go along with the physical problem this is your easy path to changing that i i think i do myself a disservice and i'm not being honest with myself if i don't say if i'm that if i'm 350 pounds overweight i'm probably going to take that drug uh and it's it's unfortunate, but if you're a 350 pound adult, it's not because you found a lot of success with lifestyle based interventions. So, like, 
I don't know if we want to get into talking about kids and, you know, reducing the the age to which these drug, uh, drugs can be distributed to, because I believe right now they reduce the age of multiple interventions, including like gastric bypass, uh, as well as these sorts of drugs down to 13-year-olds, I think. It's either 12 or 13. In Canada? Yes. I could be mistaken. This was a, a while ago, but I believe in Canada. Um, I know the pediatric um, society in the, in the United States has certainly advocated for uh, or medical management of obesity in, in adolescents. Um, I don't know about bariatric surgery. Yeah, I, these things were at least on the table. Perhaps uh, the full approval didn't go through, but they're at least in the conversation. Yeah, and sure. that's <laughs> that's a different story. Yeah, but for an adult, if you're 30, 40, 50, and this is a situation that you're in, really, what's the likelihood that this is going to be resolved through through lifestyle interventions? I think the only way that happens is you have a strong enough health scare that it drives you into but like it it hits that switch right where you you see you see the reality that is always present but never really in front of your face until you get a blood test or a scan or something where your doctor says like this is not good <laughs> and if you don't do something now you're in big trouble yeah uh, so some of that and and part of the the message to get out there that I'm always trying to to push is Physicians need to have those conversations with people, and we need to have the information available when people are in their 30s and 40s so that they can do something about it before they become high risk in their 50s and 60s and beyond. But th that's unfortunately an uphill struggle. When you talk to people about this stuff, like what's your general approach? Do you, like, do you try and communicate to different people in different ways or... How straightforward are you with your messaging? Like I think about this from from like a fitness perspective where you got to try and talk to different people in different ways. Uh, some people need strong messaging or at least will be receptive to it and not hurt by it, not hurt enough to just reject the messaging. Some people need a very, very soft approach. I'm going to say something super controversial here. And of course, <laughs> I'm talking about averages. There are exceptions. But women typically need a softer approach to communicating the changes they need to be made. Where men, you could say like, hey, fatso, you're 100 pounds overweight. Get your shit together. Not that I'd actually say that to, to another human <laughs> being. But you could say that to a, to a man and I'm sure it would still hurt. But they could accept the reality of what you said and perhaps drive some change where you can't say that to a, a woman and think that she is going to be receptive to that language when you're in the office and you know what the the six 12 month two year outcome is going to be for someone who just stays on the same path how do you have that conversation are you like very straightforward about the reality or are you trying to be very gentle in the conversation and be soft with how you communicate that to someone else? I I don't think I could be a, accused of being all that gentle. I think I'm, I'm pretty direct with my messaging. And, and I always preface it by saying, you know, my job is to tell you exactly what the data shows and what the interpretation of that information is. And then it's up to us to have a conversation for what you want to do about it. And I'm here to help guide you on the options for what you can do about it and what you seek to gain from doing that. So, yeah, it's, and it, my, my eye is always very much on prevention. And I, I tell people that. I'm like, I don't want you to have a heart attack or a stroke and become disabled when you're in your 50s or 60s because that's horrible. And your quality of life will be completely gone. And what's the point of that? So we can do things now. And by knowing things now, we can actually take a hard stance on it. So, like, let's get to work. And I would say most most people go along with that. Some people don't care. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a minority for sure. Uh, and some people, they're just, they're in that, you know, pre-contemplative phase and just perpetually stuck there. Uh, 
so there's not much you can do, honestly, for that, uh, apart from just say, well, when you become high enough risk and you need medications, like I'll prescribe those medications for you, but here's the other stuff you could do uh, to avoid those problems. Do you want to do that? And they're like, oh, I'll think about it. Or of course, they're never going to do anything. Um, but that's individual choice. It is what it is. But there's lots of people who are very... Uh, motivated once they hear what's going on. And I think it's largely a problem of you don't know what you don't know. And so unless someone with the ability to find the information through blood work or just have, you know, doing taking a history and doing a physical exam on somebody, unless somebody takes the time to do that and actually convey to you what it means, then they've got nothing to go on. So a lot of people are just sort of, you know, happily going along blind with how bad the situation actually is. I literally had this conversation with a patient yesterday afternoon who, you know, clearly they understood that they were obese, but didn't know that they had severe insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, that, you know, their cholesterol was way too high and all of these things were headed down a path of bad stuff is going to happen. So, Let's let's get to work on it. Yeah, I think a lot of times it's the way people see information too, right? Because if someone is in that situation, chances are they could assume, like if you said, what do you think we're going to find when we look at your blood sugar levels? What If you had to guess, what do you think we would find when we look at your cholesterol levels? But there's something about seeing clear information that becomes motivating to at least a certain demographic of people. Like for me, I know what leads to poor sleep. I know eating too close to bedtime. I know that staying up a little too late. I know like I know all the things that lead to poor sleep, but I don't care unless I'm wearing my ring that shows me to my face in the morning how bad my sleep was. So like when I wake up, I know that I haven't slept well. But if I don't have that metric saying, you know, here's the proof beyond your subjective though accurate experience that will actually change my behavior if i think about i have to look at this in the morning or i'm going to look at this in the morning it drives changes for me the night before so so i think <clears throat> i think a lot of times you're not actually telling someone something that they don't intuitively know but when that form of data is right in front of their face, for some reason, it can hit a switch that makes people more motivated exactly. to, to change that. Yeah. Like they want to come back next time and change those numbers. Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting. So the, the accountability partnership is you know, the, the number of times people tell me, they're like, I was so nervous for this appointment because I, I didn't know what you were going to tell me. Yeah. Or when they come back the next time, they're like, yeah, I've been like, I've been really on top of everything for the last month because I knew I had this appointment coming up and I wanted the numbers to be different. Like, great. Like, so just having that relationship and the follow-up is beneficial in and of itself. And so that's got to be consistent. And again, that's another health system issue is specialists most often don't want to follow people for a long period of time. Yeah, You want to do a consult and you want to put them back to primary care who doesn't have time to do anything for them proactively right because primary care is a mess in canada and and ontario for sure uh yeah yeah i don't want to get too philosophic with it but i wonder if that's (laughs) a matter of consequence and shortening the cycle of consequence because human beings are jesus what's going on with me today human beings are designed to avoid very specific acute dangers but when we think about the dangers today they're very long and drawn out right we don't have a lot of acute danger anymore it's like office work it's the yeah it's like (laughs) the thing you've been doing for 30 years that leads to the outcome yeah so it's like we don't have we don't have those constant updated fears Right. So I wonder if if that's if that kind of takes the place of it, whether it's the doctor's appointment next month or like the data that you're going to have to see that shows you the thing. If that kind of takes the place of the acute consequence that we don't see anymore. And that's like motivates because, you know, the the classic psychology would be people are 
drawn towards pleasure and avoid pain. And that's everything you need to know about a human being. And I think there's certainly some truth there. Um, but if you, if you never have to face the pain, right, then there's nothing really to drive you away from it with the choices that you make every single day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially if the thing that you're doing that's harming you in the long run is pleasurable. It's delicious. Yeah, <laughs> delicious or distracting. You know, makes you feel great yeah. when you smoke it or drink it or whatever. And, you know, it's funny. I had this conversation with one of my kids recently because they were asking me about. Because they were smoking and drinking too much. <laughs> they were, yeah. Those kids these days. Yeah, it's uh, wild. Well, they were asking me about smoking. And I think it, sort of in in her mind, she was thinking that, like, you smoke one cigarette and that's like you're done <laughs> like that's that's so harmful that something's going to happen to you so she's kind of asking like what happens to you like what do you have like i would ride what, that what out and be like yeah, yeah you smoke yeah, a cigarette right. you die that's right you're right so it's yeah it's having this interesting conversation like well first of all it's terrible <laughs> and it, it makes you feel awful yeah but unless i guess you've done it for long enough but yeah it's sort of explaining this but you know People have historically liked it. It was a cultural thing. But then over years, it's a huge problem. And it increases your risk of all sorts of bad things like lung disease and cancer and all the rest of it. So, but, but in the short term, like, you know, you take up smoking for a week and then give it up. Like, nothing's going to happen to you. Yeah. You might get some cool friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the hope. Eh? <laughs> yeah. That's the draw. Yeah. Right? Anyway. Um, I had two more things. If you want to, we can probably start one of them. You want to start so pick one. the one that so, you think is most well, you, exciting. You pick. So I had microbiome, microbiome, just a single word written down, uh, or a recent meta-analysis on vegetarian diets. The whole the, the audience is just on the edge of their seats. <laughs> uh, I'll take uh, I'll take vegetarian diets just because. Oh wow. Uh, and perhaps we'll cover the microbiome later, but uh, I think there's so much that's not understood about the microbiome that most of the claims being made about what it does and does not do, like we're not gonna be able to sort that out for a long time. And also- I, I think that's a good way to put a pin in it because that's basically my message <laughs> is to yeah. say, is to warn people, like don't fall for all of the garbage marketing and claims of health benefits of especially probiotic supplements because there's really no good information no good data and they don't permanently change your microbiome from what we know as soon it's as like, you take yeah. it away it goes back yeah yeah okay perfect yeah so there vegan vegetarian solved, diets solved, yeah so there was um so in in the lifestyle medicine world the hallmark diet that they talk about is a whole food plant-based diet uh, or plant predominant diet it doesn't totally exclude meat but most people that you talk to who are lifestyle medicine practitioners do exclude meat and animal products um, so there was um, and they have the reason for that is based on some data from quite a while ago for patients with coronary disease who are put on a very restrictive uh, version of a vegan diet. Uh, and they saw reversal of blockages in their coronary arteries over time. So like the highest risk people who'd had a heart attack, who had an angiogram with blockages, and now that plaque is actually regressed really tiny study i looked at it recently actually not that impressive data so but people love to hang their hats on specific things so and i, I just personally don't feel fully comfortable promoting just you know a vegetarian or vegan diet is the ultimate diet that you should go with i don't do that myself i certainly eat a broad array of animal products uh, and along with my whole foods and plant sources and everything else. Right. So a meta-analysis done, uh, which is nice to see because it's sort of like as long as the, there are good quality studies that feed into it, it's kind of the apex level of evidence because it synthesizes data from multiple different randomized controlled trials and lumps them together and tries to get a stronger signal for where to move the needle. And so when you look at it in terms of they were looking at uh, the effect on blood pressure, cholesterol, and hemoglobin A1C. So not primary like 
major cardiac outcomes. And when you get into the nuances, basically there's a very minute lowering of LDL cholesterol, which to me seems totally clinically irrelevant, uh, especially in the day and age of lipid lowering medications, which are safe and effective and not to be shunned. so not much of an effect there. And this is, there's different comparisons, right? So they're either compared to uh, a controlled diet, which would be whatever the person wants versus a, you know, a calorie restricted diet, which has, uh, doesn't exclude animal products. So it's a little bit hard to work through it, but so not much of a change there. The A1C, again, really small changes in uh, percentage of A1C coming down. And then the blood pressure, there was actually not really any substantial benefits uh, whatsoever. So not a stunning endorsement for vegetarian and, and vegan diets as the be-all, end-all of nutrition therapy for people who may be at high risk for things. Um, but again, it's it, there, are, there are many ways to treat these things. I, I personally still think like my read on all of the evidence is if you're overweight, if you're obese, if you have these other risk factors, it's calorie restriction that's the most important thing and avoidance of processed food. So if you can move more towards that whole food diet, if there's animal stuff in there, that's fine. As long as it's not super processed, then like if you're getting good quality meat, dairy, eggs, then I think it's perfectly fine to have that in there along with an ad, you know, a, a good amount of plant foods. Yeah. I, people don't focus on the commonalities of any diet that can be seen as successful. And then they identify them by what's different, which is a huge mistake because Agreed. it doesn't matter what diet you look at. The ones that work are the ones that are made up of whole foods. They're the, they don't have added sugar <laughs> within them. And they only work as far as being a healthy weight goes if you don't eat too much of those foods. So like for most people, the most beneficial diet is the one that you follow that falls under that criteria of it's a whole foods diet. And when I say whole foods, I mean you don't eat processed food, including added sugar <coughs> and other sorts of packaged foods. But then also within those diets, which one prevents you from overeating? Which one gives you the right combination of both satiety and satisfaction with the whole foods you eat, as well as doesn't have you consuming foods that drive you to consume more of that food in a way that is uncontrolled? That is the diet that you should follow. And that diet has an adequate amount of protein and an adequate amount of fiber because those are the most satiating things you can eat and don't add to a significant caloric density or overall caloric burden. And the most protein-dense foods you can eat are animal-based proteins. It's nice that there are some plant-based proteins which also have a lot of fiber that comes along for the ride so that's cool your beans and your legumes and and the like um but at the same time if you're really trying to get an adequate amount of protein and you know we can revisit that another time and we probably should uh, because we've had a lot of great recent success with people in in our program who were shocked to realize that they could eat a calorie restricted diet and like pretty restricted down to like 1200 calories a day in some some cases and be totally full the whole day just because they were getting enough protein yeah and i think most people i shouldn't say most people but in many cases the driving and this is where it gets tricky is that the driving force is not lack of satiety and it's often just a psychological desire to eat right i think at most people or just habitual yeah subconscious that's right yeah like i think most people it's easy for them at like main meals to eat healthy most of the time. Like if they're actually determined to make a change, breakfast, lunch, dinner, it's probably pretty easy to make healthy food. It's more like at the end of the day where you're used to unwinding, basically anywhere where there's a lot of free space and time. Yeah. Uh, the we, Like evenings and weekends, 
It's just when you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs, trying to think of what to occupy your time with, you get into like food becomes that that space and time filler yeah. for a lot of people, as well as an emotional crutch, right? Because any sort of like any sort of suffering you're going through, food can be a, a, a powerful, readily available form of self-medication for that as well. For sure. And then all the mindless things like you think about you've got kids when you're making dinner, you're snacking away, you know, you're cutting things up, you eat a bit more, and then kids leave stuff on their plates. Lots of people are like, well, I don't want to see that go in the garbage. I'd rather eat it myself. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's just, there's all, all sorts of those opportunities and you don't realize that you're actually doing it. You know, you have a drink or two. Well, there's calories in that too. So there's many, many ways to blow, you know, 500 to 1,000 calories easily over the course of a day yeah and that's why i tell people if you're serious you just can't have those things in your house can't have them in there and say like oh this is for special occasions oh i have this for when people come over i have this for my look i have a cheat day on saturday like that's that's not gonna work you will be constantly tempted by the things that you have not been able to control in the past and if you have shown yourself that you cannot control your intake of certain foods even healthy foods, like even foods that you would consider healthy. If you know, like, once I start eating this, I can't stop eating it. I, it's better than an unhealthy alternative, but it's still not good to not yeah. be in control of your consumption of food. So like any of those things, either it's unhealthy because of the actual substance of the food, or it's unhealthy because of your relationship with that food and your inability to control your your intake of it. Like you just can't, when will people learn that you just cannot have those things, you cannot be around those things? And that's why I think like, if you're really serious, you also can't be in places where those things exist until you get to the point where, where you control that. And I think everyone has that phase where like, you can eventually get to the place where you can be around all these tempting things and they're just not, the temptation's not there anymore. Right. But it's a bit of a it's a bit of a long road to get there. And in yeah. the meantime, you have to know yourself. And <laughs> you can, and you can't just say like, "Oh, it's going to be different because I'm determined today." Yeah. No, you're going to fall but, back into your own ways. You need to you need to know who you are. Like if you want to stay married to your wife, some guys just shouldn't go to bachelor parties. <laughs> like know yourself. If you I didn't if you, see that coming. Okay. If you know, yep. if you know <laughs> Like, don't kid yourself into thinking you can be in certain environments and you can control yourself in a way that you haven't in the past. It's just like it's an easy thing for people to reference outside of food. Like everyone knows what I mean when I say that. Like know who you are. You could use the like you could reframe it as someone who's like a problem drinker. If you're a problem drinker and every time you go somewhere, you drink way too much and you wake up the next day embarrassed about your conduct the night before, just don't be around alcohol. Don't tell yourself you can go to the place where there's unlimited amount of alcohol and you're going to have two drinks because it's never happened before. So don't pretend that it's like if you're serious about whatever that might be, like being a mature, responsible individual, then you can't be at places where there's alcohol all the time until you can be in a place where there's alcohol. Does that make sense? I mean, it's hard to have to be radically honest with yourself. I think that's that's one of the, the biggest challenges when it comes to behavior change. Anyway, I, I can think of like three occasions in the past couple of couple of months when I was in clinic and somebody comes over to me and they got the box of Timbits or muffins or something. It's like, hey, you want, I'm like, no, I don't want that. In the middle of my work day, like I'm not gonna plow back a bunch of Timbits. Like it's, yeah, no, but, pe- but people, but yeah. people will. <laughs> yes, uh, we've talked about this before, and we'll, yeah. we'll wrap this up. <laughs> okay. But like, that's the thing that people bring to like five-year-old soccer practice on Saturday at ten a.m. is like t- today's snack is Timbits. It's like well, what it's Timbits is, soccer? What is going Tommy? on? I suppose. <laughs> I suppose. But it, like, number one, I remember when I was a young lad. The halftime snack was sli- orange slices or watermelon slices. <laughs> like it was either or. That was it. And now it's like there's almost like the expectation where parents are like, oh, I had like the kids want this stuff. So it's what I have to bring. I can't like bring something healthy. Kids are expecting 
cake for breakfast after soccer. My, my son just finished his soccer season, and he can he gets water during soccer. Yeah, and I'm like, you can have a banana when we get home. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I I will flavor Williams water with just like a sugar free drink flavoring thing. Yeah, but yeah, like I just same with my kids. They did like that stuff is not in the house. You do not have that stuff. You, under no circumstances do you, at least in my presence, drink juice or pop or anything that's just liquid sugar. Even like juice and juice boxes. Like that's a line for me. I know that consuming significant amounts of sugar in any form, if it's liquid or in any concentration, if it's liquid, is a problem. And I don't even want my children to, I want them to at least know that it's not okay it's unhealthy. If you're someplace where I'm not, you can, of course, make the decision to have something that's offered to you. But they're going to know that it's not good for them. And I'm not going to pretend that those things are healthy or okay or normalize them for my kids. Aside from, like, you can have certain things on occasions. And then kids understand, oh, this is the – I get this because it's this occasion. Not just, like, I get this because I want it. I get it because it's breakfast time. I get it because – it's soccer and it's 10 a.m. So we can eat donuts. Anyhow. <laughs> so to sum it up. You derailed this podcast. If you're, <laughs> if you're a man in middle age and you've got <laughs> symptoms that we talked about, get your testosterone checked because it's probably safe and effective to go on testosterone replacement therapy if indicated. We talked about Ozempic. Just, yeah. Think twice before going down that route. It's going to be a hard uh, cultural yeah. current to swim yeah. against, I think. And then eat meat, I think, is the... Yeah, there you go. Maybe we should just <laughs> get rid of the whole first hour of the podcast, and we can just... Put Take out, testosterone put, put out that and last eat meat. Second clip. That could be uh, Andrew's trying to ramp up his YouTube presence, so he's looking to chop up some of these podcasts into little clips. I think that there I think go. that's going to be your, your yeah. viral takeoff. Yeah. Anything else? Those are your last words. That's it. The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, Clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted Huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast. <laughs>